Welcome to the Jane Bond Show, from execution to excellence. And I am your host, Jane Bond, the serial entrepreneur who will be sharing with you valuable life lessons and interviewing influencers from around the country who have broken through to success, along with giving you advice on navigating through the game. Today, our topic is The Negotiator. Our special guest comes to us with wisdom and a mindset for success. He shares with us his trials and tribulations that he experienced growing up in California, being exposed to gang life and having strict and caring parents that steered him in the other direction. He also tells us of his time spent in New York City, working and trying to get through the everyday struggles of life in the concrete jungle where he lives today with his wife and two kids as a top real estate agent, broker, and a certified negotiator. I'd like to welcome our special guest, Mr. Aaron Seawood, or Seawood, my brother, as I like to call him, from execution to excellence. Hey, Aaron, how are you today? What's up, Jane? What's good? Everything, everything. Life is good right now, even though we're going through this pandemic. I'm here, healthy, safe, staying safe, and, you know, practicing social distancing. That's right. That's our new norm, right? But you're right. You know, we have good health and we got our family, then, you know, things are in the right context as they should be, you know? Absolutely. First of all, I want to welcome you on From Execution to Excellence. And thank you for showing up for us today. I know we're all at home, so I knew I would catch you. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) You got me. No, I'm I'm, I'm really honored and happy to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, Aaron, um, we're going to start out with talking about where, you know, your roots are, where you came from. So let's dive into it. So, listen, share with us what it was like living and growing up in beautiful San Diego. Mm, Wow. What a difference from New York. Um, San Diego, as you described, and what most people know it as, you know, mid-70s degree weather all year round, uh, clean air, um, really diverse. I grew up in a diverse neighborhood, so I had almost every ethnicity on my block, um, if you can envision those uh, from Boys in the Hood, you know, those houses with the little patch yards or whatever, that was definitely my neighborhood. Um, Absolutely. I'd say I came from probably now would be lower middle, given where things are, but back then I think we would probably have been considered middle class. And, uh, you know, I had, I had a good life. You know, it was me and my sister, um, so it was a family of four. And... Um, Days were spent, like probably a lot of kids, you know, playing football in the streets, um, going to school, trying to avoid gangs. That was something that was really dominant um, that people probably wouldn't think of with San Diego. You know, you just think of surf and turf and all that. Uh, That's what I would definitely think. Was in, yeah, there's, <laughs> definitely an, there's definitely an underbelly uh, in San Diego, southeast San Diego. Um, and so similar to Boys in the Hood, it's funny. It's like you see this neighborhood and you think, not necessarily suburb, but definitely not the hood and it can you can get caught slipping so it was interesting trying to navigate and my father 
uh, because a lot of my family members were bloods, and it was it was tough that he was like, yeah, I'll kill you before you become a blood. So I was like, okay, well, there we have it. <laughs> so Okay. It was, uh, that's you know, that. It was, yeah, that's that. And, and, I was, and I'm appreciative of that, you know, because that definitely set me on my course. So I shared that because, um, you know, we could keep it real surface level, and I could just talk about, again, you know, oh, how idyllic it is. Uh, but the reality is, is that there were some things to navigate as well, you know, and that kind of probably was the first part that set me on my journey of decision-making. Of course. You know, I, I, I'm very familiar with San Diego. Um, when I was uh, doing interior design, I was called out there by Harry Swain, um, who played for the San, San Diego Chargers at the time, and um, I, I designed a house out for him in uh, Torrey Pines. No, I'm sorry, not Torrey Pines, Del Mar. And also I was designing mm. a house for, um, uh, what was his name, Broderick Thompson, who actually got killed uh, in a motorcycle accident. He played for the Chargers, but how I met them, they were transitioning over to the Eagles, and Broderick was actually, you know, interviewing with other teams at the time, and I ran into him, and he introduced me to Harry Swain, and Harry flew me out to San Diego, and I designed out what he thought at the time was his dream home in Del Mar. And I fell in love with Torrey Pines and that whole UCLA area, um, just a beautiful, beautiful area. San Diego, I think, I think San Diego is absolutely stunning. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful city. I mean, it's it's definitely um, a really, really beautiful city. Um, so yeah, I really feel fortunate for that to be my foundation for sure. Absolutely, you grew up in a wonderful area. Uh, a part of California anyway, San Diego. A lot of people love going there. So, yeah, so tell me, I mean, you talked about your having family members in the Bloods and Crips, and your dad told you, you know, if you go there, he was going to take you out, so to speak. So were there any trials and tribulations as you were growing up? Um, not directly early on. Um, you know, I was a kid that really just my dad led with a heavy hand, literally. <laughs> he was super old school and, so whoopings were, were a norm, and so I definitely uh, was not the kid that was in the streets. I definitely was in my books. I was, you know, I escaped through reading. Uh, I read. I was a voracious reader. I still am. And I think that uh, that helped with that, that uh, guidance from my father really helped keep me on the straight and narrow. Um, there were trials after, you know, once I kind of got from under his direct leadership and uh, went off to, like, an officer candidate school and got exposed to other, uh, you know, influences, if you will, um, going off to college, coming back, and then uh, thinking that I would, uh, what now I would call flirting with the game <laughs> in certain respects, um, there were trials at that point. But overall, growing up probably straight through 18, or 17, rather, it was pretty much just the, the normal rigors of school and academics and just being a kid that was just trying my best to kind of survive my home, you know. So it was less about the neighborhood and the block and really inside my home because that was, that was pretty tough. So I felt like if I could make it out of there, I could make it anywhere. Right. I, I can appreciate that. Trust me, I was familiar with whoopings and, and, and things like that, too, and shoes flying past me. Trust me, I'm very familiar <laughs> with that situation in the house, too. But, you know, my dad, we, we had more girls than we had boys, and my dad, he had to, you know, 
teach us. And my mom, she was a nurse, and she had to teach us, you know, everything we need to know about being females. And my dad, he taught us everything we needed to know about staying away from boys. So that was um, what was going on in our house also, you know, as far as them leading us down the straight and narrow path. And when you have six girls, trust me, you don't want anything to happen. <laughs> you want oh, to keep your sure. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah, God, absolutely. I have a daughter. I can only imagine. Oh, please. We had, I have five sisters, so we wow. were always, like, at attention. <laughs> so, yeah, I, am, I, I definitely can appreciate that, you know, you're talking about when you went away and then you, you were under other influences. Uh, that happens to us when we leave home. What kept you on the straight and narrow with that? Was that your father? Yeah, he was a a very principled figure. I mean, my mom, you know, I grew up two-parent home, so I have a, a, a doting mother, um, very loving. I definitely would call myself a mama's boy, and um, so that not to leave her out the picture. But when it came to, um, you know, I guess trying to navigate, you know, he gave me a lot of sense of pride, uh, being a black man in America, having me focus on having to work twice as hard, um, not making excuses. I remember I was in sixth grade, and he um, gave me this college vocabulary book, and he was like, read this. And I'm thinking, like, damn, like, I'm in sixth grade. And he's like, yo, words are power. <laughs> right? And if you learn to use, you know, increase your vocabulary to open doors for you, and it'll, it'll put you in a place where you can move. And it just – so it was incredible. It was a huge influence on my life. So, yeah, he was principally – why I didn't get dragged, and, and credit to, to my family, they weren't having it either. So they, they saw that I was on a path. They didn't really have the benefit of having a father at home or certain um, advantages that I had. So they weren't trying to see me uh, fall off and slip, you know, even though later down the line I got my hands dirty a little bit. But they even then they were like, yo, what are you doing? So, um, Yeah. It was it was definitely my father, and then and also just my faith. You know, I grew up in church, um, and there was something that always was this guiding um, principle or light or whatever, if you will, for me that kind of had me always knowing, you know, what was a bit too far. You know, we're always drawn to the light, if you will, and if you grow up in any type of neighborhood and you got street stars or you got people that got the, the, the best clothes or gear or they got money or cars or whatever it might be where you grow up, you can get drawn to that. You know, my dad was pretty conservative, you know, always paid our bills on time, never had lights cut off, good credit, couple cars. We weren't balling by any means, but it's all relative, right? So for some people, some of my oh, family absolutely. members thought we were rich. And then other people down the block we knew were doctors and had, you know, three levels up of cars, you know what I mean, like Beamers and Benzes, and we were like mid-range. But at the end of the day, um, it, it was just that, that foundation uh, that he gave me. I'd say between my faith and my father would probably be the two guiding things that kind of kept me, for the most part, on the right path. That's awesome. It sounds like his commitment to um, being a disciplinary disciplinarian in your life and guiding you to the right, you know, light as opposed to the left light. Um, it seems like you turned out all right. Yeah, I did all right. <laughs> all right. The guy I know turned out well. 
So. Yeah, that's right. No, I'm, I'm, so I'm I take my hat off to sure. your dad and your mom. And I understand Me being too. a mama's boy, too. My brother, he's one. But, you know, he turned out to be a hardcore brother, and I'm happy for him. So um, so when, when you uh, went off to college, I see that you went off to uh, D.C. and you attended Howard University after leaving home. Yeah. What yeah. brought you to D.C.? Um. You know, it was a tough choice between Morehouse and Howard. Um, and I think ultimately the Howard just, there was something about it. The Mecca, you know, just drew me, you know, just, just wanting to go to the foundation of it all. Um, and so I ended up, I went to an officer candidate school out of high school. I originally had got scholarships to go right out of high school. And um, again, my dad uh, was like, yo, we ain't got no family. It's 3,000 miles away. Why don't you go to this officer candidate program? You'll be off camp. You know, you'll be out of the house, but, you know, you'll be close by and thought it was kind of a bridge. And in theory, it sounded good. The downside, what he couldn't anticipate was when I mentioned those other influences, now being in the military, you're around grown men and you're moving, you know, moving different. Whereas I was in a bubble coming out of school, and I think had I shot straight to college, even though I would have been far away, I would have been in the mindset of academics and I wouldn't have had kind of these, these other um, influences, if you will. Um, so I basically was the original Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. So I let them have the title of uh, leaving school early, but, you know, I was one of the first, not proud <laughs> to say it, um, but, you know, I ended up leaving um, shortly. I, I didn't spend a lot of time there, but it was definitely um, a great experience for the time I was there. Um, but what I'll speak on is that, Part of, I think, me not wanting to stay was that I was cross-enrolled at GW, uh, George Washington University, and in hindsight, I was set up perfectly, if you think about it. Howard University, George Washington, um, you got me cross-enrolled, I'm getting the best of both worlds. Coming out of that, you know, four or five years later would have been rock star, uh, but I couldn't appreciate it because... Um, being cross-enrolled and 3,000 miles away from home and trying to navigate two different worlds, um, all in the context of a military type of environment, it just wasn't, it wasn't a good mix. And then there were some right. brothers on campus that I really vibe with um, that, you know, initially I was going to pledge Kappa and they got suspended off the yard. And so there just wasn't a lot of um, support there um, that I think that had, I had that. Um, I might have been able to weather the storm. And I can be, at the time, a bit impulsive and cre as a creative as, as my foundation and wanting to just do my thing. Um, I was also heavily involved in music. Um, I was doing a lot of writing for artists and, and producing in the background or what have you. And so I just kind of had this idea, like, you know what? I'm not fooling with this. Like, I'm, I'm not really trying to, trying to do this thing. I'm going to go and... Uh, I had a bright idea to go home and, and figure out an alternative way to fund school, <laughs> which I learned quickly. Was okay, not, was not a good, uh, not a good way to go. Uh, so I'll leave that there. But I will say that um, I did learn a lot by taking the long route, if you will. You know, I think there's something to be said for starting something and finishing it. There's a huge value there. Um, the network and the friends and the people that you make in college is, is invaluable. Um, but there's also something to be said for, if that's not your bag, being able to have the confidence, um, you know, to to pursue another route, you know, even if no, it seems absolutely. a little more circuitous 
and, and not direct, you know, which we learn as an entrepreneur is really our route. It's not a straight line. You know, it's a, it's a super it curvy line. It definitely isn't. It so. definitely isn't. I mean, going to Howard is a wonderful thing. I mean, I, trust me, I didn't go to an all-black university, and in hindsight, I wish I had had that experience. I mean, especially you're in a major city. We, you know, we call that city Chocolate City. And That's right. Like you said, being across from uh, George Washington and being in Howard and, and in the military environment, I mean, it could be a heavy mix for someone, you know, a young kid coming from L.A., which is a whole different environment, a whole different lifestyle coming up to the East Coast. I mean, even me as an adult, when I made a decision, and, you know, this is a segue to my next question, when I made a decision to leave home after being in the work world and being an entrepreneur, thinking, okay, I'm, I don't outgrew my city, which was Philadelphia, you know, which is a major city also, I was heading to California. And something yeah. told me not to go. Something just told me not to go. I said, I'm going to do the same thing, 3,000 miles away from home, and it's time to come home for the holidays, see my mom, take care of business. This is not going to work for me. You know, and it's a whole nother avenue, you know, as far as college is concerned. But I went into the other direction. I said, you know, I'm going to go stay closer to home. So I went to New York City. So with that being said, what brought you to New York City? Well, that's, that's great, though, to hear your trajectory and that choice and look how foundational it was. For me, mine um, wasn't as thought out. I mean, I had experienced New York briefly being at Howard and had a taste of it and loved it. And the, the real reason was at the time when I had, you know, came back to San Diego um, and spent some time there, I ended up hooking up with a direct sales company, and, which is a fancy way of saying door-to-door sales. And right. <laughs> I, I, really, I really blew up. Like, I, um, you know, had grown a lot. I was a shy kid growing up, and I had just really come out of my shell and, and really got to a place where um, I had learned a lot. It was re- really where I got a lot of my foundational sales training at, and that company was nationwide. They were an importer of wholesale goods. So they may have a container come from China of calculators or, you know, kids' pianos or whatever it was, just all kind of random stuff. And you would sell it. You'd go business to business or place to place. And the thought was, you know, whatever they were getting it for pennies on the dollar, we, it, it was an impulse business. So you'd be selling stuff for between 10 and 12 bucks a pop. And it was really basically an old-school pyramid situation where, you know, you, you respond to a warehouse ad, you end up with somebody going business-to-business business selling shit, not understanding how that has anything to do with a warehouse job. But at that point, you're intrigued because cash is flowing and, and you're seeing someone drop 30, 40 pieces of product in a day. And the goal was, you know, back then, this is like early 90s, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s, I'll say late 90s, early 90s, sorry, um, $100 a day was the goal. And then the thought was if you could train people, um, you know, build your crew, then you could get out the field and you'd open offices. So fast forward, that's how I ended up in New York, is that I got to a place where I had built several teams and I had ended up um, moving from San Diego up to Orange County. I was in L.A. for quite some time, uh, popped into Texas, Minneapolis, and then I made my way to New York. 
and set up shop in Queens and Elmont was my office on Elmont Road. I'll never forget that. And uh, that's what brought me to New York. And um, after about a year of that or so, I really got burnt out of my income being tied into motivating other people. So it was right. really – Right, that was pyramiding. That, that yeah. was pyramiding at its best. And at its best. You probably thrived because you guys had that sunny personality from California. <laughs> oh, my God. I would – I would. Uh, it was crazy. I remember running in spots, and they would be like, you know, get the F out. You know, can't you read? No soliciting. And I'm like, no problem. Have a great day. And so it really helps you <laughs> get a thick skin. And I'd come in clowning and joking or whatever and say, listen, you know, I got six left. Did you want to buy all six or just three? You know, you just learn, like, how to sell. Right. And it was great. Right. And I learned, um, you know, the art of selling and fear of loss and all the, like, old school baseline sales things. And, and you know, obviously not a lot of things that you want to implement necessarily in day-to-day -day interactions now, but they still can inform how you create urgency around something if you want to move it, you know. And Absolutely. It, was, it was a really – it was a really good experience. And then just thinking about the goal was to see 300 people a day. That shit was really hardcore. You know what I mean? To right. Business to right. business. And then learning to be thorough because most people go down a business strip and they go store to store to store, mechanic shop, whatever. They would never bust the left or right and go one block in off the main drag. They would just do the main drag, come back, get rocked. Everybody else had done that. So I learned, hold up, I'm going to go off the beaten path, and I'm going to go, you know, let me bust a right on this block real quick. I see three, four businesses. And sure enough, people hadn't done that. So that also in itself was a lesson that you got to be thorough. You know, you have Yeah, you to, were pivoting left and right and even down in the alleyways, which is every, – Everything. That's what makes – Right. That's what makes it's a all about great law of averages. Too. The more people exactly. you see, the more money you make. And that's, that's in right. real estate now. That's in any business. The more people you see, the more money you make. So um, the that same was the thing. Good. The more people you talk to, the more that's right. More people you talk you can to. bring on. That's right. It's that's all right. about numbers. It's all about that's the right. numbers. It you is. know, and, and really that is. old school selling technique that you were using. Trust me, it comes back all the time. Those canned speeches, they work. And a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you make it your own. You bring right. your own personality to it. We become actors in our own right. And I have won right. Oscars. Trust me. <laughs> we so become yeah, that's actors. What brought me, oh, right. <laughs> for sure. So that's what brought me to New York. Um, and then the next phase of my career and path is what kept me in New York. Um, right. Which is, which well, wait is a minute. Great. Let's digress a little. Let's digress a little. When you were in New York, I mean, and I, we call New York the concrete jungle. What, oh, did yeah. you have any challenges there when you moved there? Yeah, I mean, when I – oh, God. So when I first got to New York, so my girlfriend at the time, I remember she had come out to New York about six months prior. She had got promoted to be, you know, running the operations for that same company. And it was like, look, you know, I'm planning to make a move out there too. And, you know, if you like it, whatever, I'm going to come out. And so that also partly motivated the move. So I ended up out here. And, you know, the challenge initially was housing, you know, coincidentally. So we stayed with right. a friend in her house. And I remember feeling like a slave schlepping uh, a big-ass 50-pound bag of laundry because we didn't have a car 
all the way to the laundromat, which was, and I don't want to exaggerate, it literally is 10, 15 blocks. It was mad far. And I was like, oh, my God, this is brutal. And, right. you know, doing that routine, living in a room in someone's crib, and then ultimately, um, you know, working my way up and scrap, you know, scrapping and getting my team, you know, going and then getting enough money for us to rent a small place in Dix Hills. And it was funny because it was this little small, it, it seemed like a guest house on someone's property. So the woman, the landlord was next door in a real house. And then we were in this little guest house type thing paying rent. But it was cool. It was like a little baby crib. It was right, right. Um, and so that was, you know, that was that. And, and then ultimately she got burnt out and was, you know, because she was also from Cali and was like, yo, this isn't the move for me. I'm going back. And right at that point um, I had transitioned out of that business and had been trying to get on in the music business. I had, I had made a lot of money and I would stacked it. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to try to get in the music industry. Because, again, I had always been around it, you know, as a, as a writer or someone, a manager. I was always like that guy that pushed it together. I was always someone that was putting things together. And um, so I stayed, you know. And that was a pivotal point, too, because I think a lot of times in our life, if we're in relationships or situations that we deem um, permanent and then something changes on the other side of it, Sometimes you roll with that because that feels right to right. you and that's cool, and you both make a move. But then there's times that something tugs at your heart, and you're like, yeah, I'm not burnt out. I'm just getting started. <laughs> so Yeah, I need to stay here for a minute. Right, and, and, and good thing I did because I had just got on with Flavor Unit. That, that was my, my introduction to the music game. You know, I had, you know, moonlighted at this record store because, again, I had the money, so I didn't really need bread. I needed exposure. I needed access. So I'll never forget, it was Paradise Records um, and Wine Dance, and my man there, you know, put me on, and I'd say, look, man, just let me be around. You know, when you run to Brooklyn and get records, you know, for the record store, I'll go with you, you know, or if you need me to sweep up or do whatever, just I just want to be around the element. And it was just let me in. <laughs> right. I just wanted to be around it, you know. And, uh, right. So I, I did that, and then I just got a hold of all these numbers, and, and back then, um, so I can date myself, <laughs> you know, they had all the phone numbers and fax numbers for every label and every, I still don't know how I got that list. Uh, but again, being a hustler, I figured it out. And I took the time and, and hey, went to the office and I faxed will every be hustlers, single right? <laughs> label. And I got all these letters back, Sony, you know, Warner Brothers, this one, that one. Yeah, thanks for your interest in being an A&R. No thanks. No thanks. No, 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 no. And then one day I got a call over that summer, I think it was 95, because uh, I got to New York in 94, in 95, summer of 95. And it was a dope-ass summer, too. I want to say uh, Purple Tape came out that summer. Um, Mob Deep had some dope shit. <laughs> oh, Wu-Tang, I was I'm with you rocking. on it. I'm with you. You ain't oh getting yourself too it, much. It was I'm a right crazy along summer. With you. <laughs> yeah. 95. Woo, um, the 90s was beautiful. And I got a, a call, um, and a woman would have um, – uh, a Caribbean accent was like, yeah, you know, we got your resume and uh, we're looking for somebody to answer phones. And by this time, I was so humbled, right? I thought I was just going to walk in and be an A&R and make records. Like, little did I know, it was like, fam, that's not how, that's not how it works. So I thought it was a prank call. Um, but it turned out it was real. And it was a woman from uh, Marsha from uh, Latifah's company saying that, you know, and, and it was funny is that the girls had said that they um, – 
they'd wanted a guy to answer phones. They felt like, you know, it was always girls answering phones. It was more kind of a prank. It wasn't even anything real. And I was way overqualified. I remember being so excited. I drove all the way from Long Island to Jersey City where the office was. It took me an hour and a half to get there. Um, I'm all suited up. <laughs> yeah, because mind you, I'm coming out of that business, so that wasn't even the um, – the, the regiment, you know what I mean? You're wearing suits and ties and a whole different thing, so I had to adjust that swag over time. But I remember interviewing, and it's like, yo, you're way overqualified. Why would he hire you? And I'm like, why wouldn't you? I've had someone answer my phones. I have a team of 50 people running around selling shit. You got me baked in, so I'll pay my dues. I'll start out answering phones. I'll crush that, and then you got me in-house. You ain't got to go outside. You can just promote me from within. And I guess he loved my, my you know, my whole thing, and they Your whole presentation. <laughs> yeah, I was like, good morning, flavor unit. Can I help you? Okay. <laughs> good afternoon, flavor unit. Hold, please. <laughs> you, you said, I know how to answer these phones. He's, okay. So I was like, that's where I start. And I think that's important for people to know when we talk about execution of excellence is that I'm not going to spend any time on this podcast bad-mouthing our youth or people that want to come right out and be CEOs or run their own thing because I wanted to. So no, no shame there. But I think that there's something to be said for having a degree of humility and being able to say it's not beneath me to do something that technically I'm overqualified for if it's going to be a gateway to where I want to get to. I think oh, that's really come on. You better talk really about it, Aaron. You better important. let them know that. You know, so – me answering phones, you know, at 24 years old, I had already run a company, been in several states, making thousands a week, and here I was going to make $318 a week, $318 a week. And I had to commute four hours a day, two hours from Long Island by train at this point because I wasn't driving anymore, wasn't practical, had to take the Long Island Railroad. Anybody that knows, that's not most efficient, so you got to get there, take a cab to the Long Island Railroad, take that an hour into Penn Station, transfer. At the time, the path was not elaborate like it is now in 2020. It was disgusting. Then I had to go into Jersey City, and on that was on a whack schedule, and then I had to walk from the path station to Flavor Unit on Morgan Street, which is an old converted firehouse, and then do it all over again. And it was two hours each way, four hours out of my day to make $318 a week, and I couldn't have been happier than I that's was in right. the world to walk and show up at that office first and leave last every single day. And you know day. what that says, though? That's what you call passion for something that you really wanted. You, would, you were willing to do whatever it took to get there. That's the execution part. You have to execute yeah. everything inside of you because we all have everything we need inside of us to get to where we want. And that creative part coupled up with your business sense, that's a bad mother uffer. <laughs> yeah. You can't no, that do was, nothing with that when you meet right, somebody that like was, you. That was that was um that was a special time, um, for sure, to to be able to get into the music business in the nineties and the golden era and right. ride that wave and work with the artists that I work with. I mean, Flavian at that time we had everybody under the banner. Um, you know, from Naughty by Nature, Monica Exhibit, Donnell Jones, uh, Monifa, Outcast, Onyx, who I managed, LL, who I co-managed with Shaquem. Um, who else? We had Mary for two seconds. I mean, we had so many people. It was just an amazing, amazing experience to, to be a part oh, of music at that me. time. So I remember Flavor. It was, it was good. I remember Flavor. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, because we yeah, so. had um, we had the and we had in bond management up in New York City. I was pretty pretty much one of the only black entertainment managers there at the time. So mm. you know we ran into everybody, and I mean it was just a different time, like you said. It wasn't so you know corporate to to get in to talk to people because you had to just be there, right place, right, right. time, and they took you in. Right. And starting from the bottom, whatever you had to do. You had to just yeah. do it because that's right. the only way you were going to get in, you know, and then right. build from there and build your platform from there and trust too. These people had to trust you because they were on the front line. If you screwed up, you screwed up for them. So, right. you know, being a manager, answering the, from answering the phones to picking up what they needed to going to find the photographer to going to find the stylist, I remember looking for people all the time. And just yep. interviewing, 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 and just finding the right fit, you know. And that right fit mm-hmm. is not always what you think it is when you get it. So, yeah, oh, right. you, that, was a, that was a special time. And with someone putting you on at that time, it couldn't get any better. No, that's real. And I think there's something to be said for, I mean, look, I love where we are now with technology where, you know, people can literally just tap whoever they want to tap. I think that's incredible that you have a gift right. or you have a talent, you have a product, you have a service, whatever it is you have, you know, you could just at somebody and instantly get a response. I think that's dope. The flip side of yeah. it, though, I think there's something, um, and, again, it's probably because I've already went through it, so I'm okay with it now. Uh, but when you, you know, you have to go through to get to. And when you – when you really have to fight for something, claw for something, scratch for something, um, the appreciation level is right. so deep that when you it get that opportunity, so you value it and you cherish it. And I think right. the only tough part with technology, they always say what your gift is also your Achilles heel. The gift of being able to at anyone is also the Achilles heel is that you know what? You know what? What? What do you cherish? Because if you can just get right at product, producer X or artist Y, you know what? What appreciation do you have for that happening? It's almost like you expect it. You think that okay, this is what it is, and I'm not mad at you for it. But there's something to be said for um, building a resolve, building a, a perseverance uh, to yourself, if you will. If you had to really go through something to get something, if it's kind of just there. Um, no disrespect, because there's a lot of people that are successful, and that's fine. And, and maybe they went through some trials, tribulations, just to get to that place. So I don't want to disrespect anyone, but I think overall, there's something to be said for uh, really cherishing opportunities. You know, I agree with you. I think a lot of people are desensitized to certain things and certain ways of doing things. And you know, like you said, when you have to scrape, crawl, grab, you know, do whatever you need to do to get there. There is so much value in that because, you know, when you look back at that, you understood what it took for you to get there, and you do have a great appreciation for and appreciation for the people around you. And those things do allow you to humble yourself. And if you're not humble yeah. today, something's wrong with yeah. that. Right. And we, I think a lot of us have gotten past being humble I mean, I know me. I will always be humble. I know what I've been through, what my family been through, and friends also. You know, and our age group is a little bit different from the people that are coming of age now because they do have access. Right. And access is not always a good thing. 
like you no, said. That's true, particularly you, if it's not coupled with maturity. I mean, that's something exactly. that I had to learn that early on. I didn't have the maturity to go along with, you know, some of that access, you know, and you pay for it, you know, and you have to humble yourself and regroup. And I remember being in the studio with Dr. Dre, and it was really ill when he said something that I thought was really powerful that I'll share. It was that, um, you know, so many people focus on getting to the top of the mountain. And, of course, that's hard as hell, right? Like we all trying to get to the quote-unquote whatever that is for us, top of the mountain. He said, but what nobody really thinks about is how they're going to stay there. And I was like, damn. That was well, even so how they got with Getting there, getting there. Once I get here, once mm-hmm. I get there, once I get this exactly. amount of bread, once such and such co-signs me, once this happens, but nobody thinks through like, okay, guess what? Poof, you're here now. Such and such co-signs right. you. The record is fire. You got these clients. You broke into the luxury market. You know, all that, whatever it is for you. How are you going to stay? How are you going to maintain? Now what? And that's where those skill sets come into play that are that's required right. for you to not be you a better, shooting You star. better say that. You better tell them that because that's so true. You know, it's funny you said that. I was just having this conversation. You know, you have to know what success looks like and is like for you. And even when you think you've made it in the eyes of so many other people, in your heart, in your mind, you might not be there because it's not right. what you thought it would be when you got there. And now right. that you're there, how are you going to do this again? Because it's like real estate. It's like once you get to that place where everybody says, oh, now you're a top agent and you realize you've got to get up and do this shit all over again to stay there, because some people think it was a fluke, that's right. the hard part. Right. That's the hard part. I, you know, I don't know, you know, I have a book coming out, and I talk yeah. about that, getting there nice. and staying there and knowing mm. what that, what success means like or feels like to you. Are you there yet? Right. And then it could be, in everybody else's eyes, you could be there because they see you with, you know, the nice clothes, the new cars, the you know, every, every few years you got a new car, um, you got every designer out there. But none of that means anything if you don't believe that. That's right. Something I like to say, which I'm probably going to call my book, which I'm working on, so I love that you already, I'll just be in your wind draft. <laughs> oh, plug um, it, baby, plug it. <laughs> is is um, the first sale you make is to yourself. So it's going to be the first sale, and then you make is to yourself. I think that really people don't realize that. If you don't believe you're worthy, if you don't believe that you deserve it, if you don't believe um, that you're supposed to be where you're supposed to be at that moment in time, it's not going to happen for you. You can look for validation outside forever. It will never happen until you validate yourself. So the first sale you make is to yourself. So to your point, that's really powerful and important. This is true because, like you said, just those few words, if you don't believe, if you don't mm. believe it, who's going to believe it? Well, how are you going to make anybody right. else believe it? That's right. You know, you got to trust and believe in who you are. And like I said, I'll repeat it. We have everything inside of us to get to exactly where we feel as though we should be. And hopefully when you get there, you're thankful, you're grateful, and you're humble still because that's what's going to keep you going. That's right. I love that you said that, too, because I think more than ever, being in this quarantine and, and, and shelter in place and in New York, you know, obviously is the epicenter of this coronavirus. It's unbelievable just being in the house every day and with my kids of a 12 and a 10 year old. And it's just 
it's unnerving to kind of watch them process all this. And then for me, um, just being still and, and seeing everything on IG or Twitter or, you know, news or what have you, all the messaging and everything that's coming out, everyone has got an opinion, everyone is speculating, everyone has got some shit to sell. It's, it's really critical to be able to actually have, have your shields up, to have your filter right. up to know that, yeah, everything I need is actually inside, not outside. But if we take in all this information that people are projecting and, we, and they project it onto us, then that is what we start to use to value ourselves instead of really looking inside and saying, what feels right to me? You know, what feels good? And if this feels right, then I roll with it. It doesn't mean that I can't be, you know, model success, of course, or that I can't um, look to others for examples or any of that, but to, to think that the core, um, you know, messaging or kind of direction is going to come from outside versus inside is wrong. So I love that you, you shared that. That's definitely powerful. Yeah, you definitely have to know who you are and, and be comfortable with that person that you look into the mirror at every day. And that's where I come from. If I can be happy with who I see when I wake up every morning and look into the mirror and get ready for my day, I'm good. That's right. And, you and know, I, don't, I haven't always felt that way. And I think it's okay for people to know that, you know, you're not going to always love that person in the mirror. You are going to neither have I. yourself I'm up. You sometimes yeah, you're going to – it's just natural that we're going to compare ourselves. You know, I'm this age. How come I don't have this or I'm not at this place or, right. you know, I, I went to this school but I didn't get this GPA or I've got whatever. Like whatever it is, I wish I was taller. I wish it was this, wish it was that. It's always a bunch of something. But at the end of the day, we're all unique. We're one of one. And I think if people really start to understand that, look, you don't need to try to be anybody else. That shit's already taken. You know, you got a spot. So value, play to your strengths. You know, identify what your strengths are and play to that instead of focusing on what you're not, you know. This is true because you're right. I mean, I have not always looked in the mirror and liked who I was at that time and moment, but I always found the strength in God to guide me and take me where I needed to go. And I said to myself, you know, it's, I can give anything back to the world, I'm good. Then I'm happy with myself. Then I'm more humble. And, and that's where, you know, I stand with anything I do. And people I meet that come into my path, you know, it's, if I can help you, trust me, I'm going to try. If I can give you anything that you need, I'm going to try because that's just who I am. And that's what makes me happy. And that's what makes me love the person I see in the mirror every day because I'm always going to be grateful. And I think the people that I engage with the most, that I, I surround myself with, they're coming from the same state of mind. So, you know, that's and, right. and that's a good thing. So we could talk about that all day long, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So what made you pivot into real estate? Because I know for me the entertainment industry was end-all, be-all. I loved it. I could go back to it tomorrow you know, if I had the opportunity, um, but, you know, my life went into a, went to another direction. Um, but what made you pivot into real estate? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, after my days, the heydays of Flavor Unit and I transitioned to Virgin Records, was the head of A&R on East Coast for Virgin, and then did some consulting. By that time, that took me out into the 2000s, and the game had shifted. You know, it was very clear that uh, we were no longer using two-inch tape for people to remember those days, reel-to-reel machines in the studio or 
uh, knee boards people were doing. I remember Lenny Kravitz, I think, was the first one uh, who was on Virgin that did his album in Pro Tools in the box, and it was groundbreaking, and everyone's like, oh, my God, and, you know, the worry of analog sound and all that. And, um, you know, fast forward, it just got to a point where the landscape had shifted, the music industry had proven that they were pretty antiquated, you know, when Napster was created, instead of the music industry bringing, you know, him in and then saying, listen, make that for us, it was trying to stomp it out and not make it happen. It was very clear. Um, and then ultimately, obviously, iTunes, you know, years later, you know, creating the whole system that the industry should have created for itself. It was apparent right. that um, we were standing on quicksand. That coupled with um, something that I've learned not to do in real estate, which was want something more for someone else than they wanted for themselves. And that's where I found myself now as a consultant, um, where I was either consulting artists kind of in a manager capacity or an A&R executive producer with projects. I just, I didn't like, once again, my income being tied to someone else's effort or commitment or passion. Um, so similar to my direct sales days where I had guys or girls running around selling stuff and I had to motivate them every day to kind of move up the, the ladder, uh, it was similar with these artists. And if you were paired with the right artist or you made the right choice, and there's a few of them that we know that are successful, um, then God bless, you were good money. But the majority hundreds and hundreds, thousands, you know, arguably even millions, um, never made it for various reasons. And so that kind of just put me in a place where I was like, I can't want it for this artist more than they want it, and I can't have oh. my income tied oh. to, to that, you know. So my I wife see. now, which at the time, 04, we started dating, um, Lauren was kind of like when we, we had dated previously in the late 90s and then, you know, regrouped back in 04. Her first thing was like, you still in the music industry? So that was so funny. Shit. So she was always like, you know, you got to pivot um, and had made different suggestions. And, you know, uh, men were not always receptive to um, suggestions, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't. From the get, other sex. Uh, <laughs> the wheels turn correct. <laughs> so it needs right? to be our idea. So all my ladies out there, you know, don't beat them up, you know, just, uh, you know, let it be of his idea. <laughs> so I don't want to get drunk. Yeah, well, you know, we're um, teachers anyway. We bring yeah, you here. No. So we got to guide but, you somehow. Yeah, so there were suggestions. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the right fit, and it was good for me to honor that. But it did get, to, get me to thinking, like, you know, I definitely got to make a move. And real estate was just something that um, even my days back in San Diego, I had started to take a class. I didn't finish it. Um, and I don't know, I was just intrigued. I love design. I'm a people person, first and foremost, and that's really what real estate is. It appears that it's about property, but it, it's really a people business. Um, no, and totally relationship. Being a, you know, always negotiating, whether it was multi-million dollar deals in the music industry um, or, you know, just previous dealings with that, that wholesaling company, um, I just felt like, you know, this might be a play. So I remember telling Lauren, I said, yeah, I think I'm going to do real estate. And she couldn't have been more. She was like, you'll be great. <laughs> she was like, what do we need to do? Like, I'm, I'll treat for school. Like, what, what, what's popping? Like, I was like, no, right. no. So um, I ended up, you know, and that's one thing about me, I'm decisive. So if I'm going to do something, I do it. I don't play around. Right. I don't talk about it forever. So uh, my homegirl at the time, I want to give her props, um, Annette Jarvis, she had worked with Raphael Sadiq, and she was managing him for a long time, and she ended up transitioning out from that 
and going into real estate. And she said, look, I'm making six figures, and, you know, I'm enjoying it. And if you think you want to pivot, you know, let me know. I'll get you an interview at this company and, and you know, let me know what's good. So we are about to go on vacation. I was tight because I wanted to start the next day. So I signed up. This was 08, the summer of 08. Um, and I basically, you know, signed up for the class and knocked it out in two weeks. I went back to back, you know, in New York at 75 hours to get your license. So right. I, um, I did, you know, 9 a.m. class, 1 p.m. class, whatever, every day for two weeks straight, you know, did the test, the whole exam, whatever, passed. And, you know, true to form, two weeks later, I'm like, that was good. And she's like, damn, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, what's up? Like, I need that interview. So I went <laughs> where, where the same exam. Right, on uh, July 23rd, 08, and went right from there. I remember it was a sweltering hot day. I mean, it was hot as shit, and I was, it was humid, and that's one thing I miss about Cali. If somebody's like, what, the weather is not just saying the weather, but the humidity, there is none yeah. in California, unless you have what we call Santa Ana, then it would get humid. Other than that, it was beautiful dry heat, which you can deal with, yes. right, because you're not sweating out yes. your clothes every two hours. So that day was unbelievable. I take the test, and then I go right to this interview, and uh, I'm trying to get myself together. It was coming from the train, whatever, gather myself and, you know, interview there. And, you know, in hindsight now, you don't realize that unless you're a doorknob, for the most part, they're going to hire you, right? It's really about body count, but back exactly. then, you know, I didn't know. And you, I'm you like, know it's so I, crazy, you don't even realize you're interviewing them. <laughs> right, right. That's so funny. So, so that light bulb right. goes off. Right. I had no reference point, right? It is my homegirl was like, yo, I got you. So cool. That's where I'm going. So it was a small shop and um, maybe about two, was about 300 agents, I think, out of like three different offices. And uh, I got started and I started out as a rental agent. And this was 08. So, you know, everybody knows the Great Recession, you know, economy crashed like three months later. Right. So that summer was popping, though. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was at the top of the, of the company right off the rip for like three months, and then the whole bottom fell out, and then I was at zero. And that was really interesting to – and I didn't even have a doubt. It wasn't like – now that I think about it, I'm like, damn, I didn't even trip. Like, yo, this is bullshit. I'm out. Like, let me go try some other shit. You oh, know, I didn't no. even think that. I was like, I guess because I got success so quick and it was so substantial – and they were like, oh, shit, this dude's a superstar. I'm like, oh, shit, okay, I'm popping. And then so the bottom falls out, and I'm still kind of like – well, all right, I can navigate this. And so slow crawling through the top of 09. But then, I, you know, I started bubbling. And one thing I did to differentiate myself, um, and again, when we talk about long view, is um, I purposely uh, aligned myself with higher-end apartments. So I was like, okay, if I'm renting apartments, it's going to take the same amount of effort for me to, to rent a $6,000 two-bed than it is for me to rent, you know, a three-bed for 1800 or something. So I wasn't interested in low price points. It wasn't about people or being better or less. I just looked at it from an efficiency standpoint. And Same I amount of work. Yeah, I wasn't a volume guy. I remember a girl next to me, um, she would meet with like 60 people a month. Now, there's a value Ooh. in meeting that many people in another mm-hmm. capacity, but just for the sake of just this one thing, I was like, wow, that's grossly inefficient. You are meeting mad people that you'll never deal with and, and what have you. I'm, I'm instead going to really get good at qualifying, taking all that I learned from all my previous sales and experience and all that and qualifying people. So I'm going to do less deals, but they'll be higher amount. 
And so right. I was good. And that's what I did. And so then that transitioned really nicely into buyers because those people had the wherewithal and the capacity to buy um, exactly. in a shorter time frame than other people. So that was – I don't want to claim that I had this, this real genius or anything of knowing that definitively, but it just felt right. And that goes back to, again, sometimes you may not even have the exact answer or proof, per se, of concept, but if it feels right, you roll with it. You know, and if it doesn't yeah. work, then you I totally, I totally understand that because I did the same thing, but um, I never did rentals because my market is not about rentals here. But um, mm-hmm. when I was in New York, even I was with Bellmark in New York around the same time, which was interesting. And I know we ran into each other in the music industry. And um, for some odd reason, we didn't stay in touch, but I saw a couple of pictures of you, and I was like, I know I ran into this dude. <laughs> I know we <laughs> Now, was that? Now, here, so yeah. here's the test. Was that with me with long hair or short? <laughs> no, you had short hair. You had short okay. hair when I ran into you. And, okay. Um, so that was, yeah, that was 2000. And because when I was from the late 90s up through 2000, your boy was looking like Snoop or DJ Quick or um, <laughs> yeah, I saw Radio some of those and Joe Cooley. Too. Like I was looking real cool. I, I, I have to send you a copy of my New York license. I saved it. It looks so bananas right now. <laughs> oh, my God. But you know what was so crazy? I ran into Spencer back then. He was with Corcoran, <laughs> and I was mm. with Bellmark. And it was late. It was in, you know, I got to New York in the late 90s. I got there like in 97. Okay. And I went, I got my license because I thought coupled up with my interior design, I couldn't, you know, lose becoming a real estate agent. And my, I was at 79th and Park. No, 79th and Madison. I was at that office mm. upstairs with Bellmark. And I ran to a lot of agents. And at that time, it was a lot of black agents in New York City. Wow. So it was it was what, very what interesting. Side, I don't know. Conversation. <laughs> yeah, it was very interesting because I remember when the light bulb went off in my head, I remember it was me and my friend, we've got our license together, and he went and interviewed, and he didn't get hired by the same company. And I said to him, I said, listen, are you interviewing them? I said, because that's how I'm handling it. When I walk through the door, I'm interviewing them. They think they're interviewing. You know, because I had already been in business for myself. I had never worked for anyone. You know, the only, only job I ever had was with the airline. So anything else I did on my own. So I wanted to know who they were. You know, you, you can find out who I am. I wanted to know who you were. If you were a good fit for me, if you were going to be my partner, then that meant you had to be a good fit for me. And I handled right. my business that way no matter where I went. Even here today when I started out um, in real estate here in Florida, I was interviewing them. Right. You know, I was, that's how I handled it. But uh, it was a different time back then in the 90s, and I had my license. I'll never forget, I was working with this woman. She was like the queen of New York. I mean, and, and everything was from, I was at 79th and Mad, and all the calls we would get were either the people wanted to live from on 3rd, they didn't want to go past 3rd Avenue, and they only wanted to go to Lexington on the east side. So it had to be from Lexington the third, and it was from 56 to, I think it was, I want to say 79th. They didn't go past there. And, I mean, these were wealthy people. And, and if, if we went the other way, 
we only went from park to sixth. They didn't want to go past seventh. And it was so mm-hmm. crazy, and, they, and it was all 58th to 79th. I was like, wow, this is deep, <laughs> you know? And they were, they were spending lots of money, and she was killing it. I called her the yeah. queen of Park Avenue. Well, that, that pocket is beautiful. Anybody that knows Upper East Side in the low 60s, particularly 5th, Madison Park. Right. Um, That's a gorgeous area. Yeah, 60s up to 72nd. If you do stretch it, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah. So, so I read a quote about you, and it said, Aaron turns, quote, Aaron turns the business of selling real estate into the art, into an art. Tell me about that. Mm. I thought that was a really gracious quote. Uh, my clients, I had helped them relocate from the village to Paris. Um, I, I think it speaks to getting outside of the transaction itself. You know, it is a transactional business. You know, you are helping someone buy or help some, someone sell, um, but there's nothing to say that you can't make um, an experience of it for the parties involved. And I think that what I've done is really prided myself, um, hence the name of, you know, Team Carte Blanche, is, you know, you know when you have Carte Blanche, you have a blank check. You don't worry right. about anything. You go into a restaurant, they're like, yo, the maitre d' are waiting for you. You got Carte Blanche, Shane, you good. You're like, shh. I ain't going to worry about nothing. That's how I want my clients to feel. So I think when they wrote that and said, you know, it turns into an art, it really – I remember specifically with that, that situation, that was – it wasn't a test because I was happy to do it, but it was, it was an interesting experience. I won't, you know, bore everyone with all the details, but the short story is a woman had lived in her apartment for 30-plus years. Um, she had cats. She had – as you would imagine, over that time of life, collected everything under the moon. Um, and she had a really interesting life. So she had dealt with a lot of celebrities of the day. Um, she had a lot of past loves. There was a lot of stuff. So there were times that, you know, she was willing to make this move with her current partner and him. He really wanted to go to Paris. He's a writer. And she was like, yeah, let's do it. And then she would, like, totally want to backtrack and you know we'd sit on her couch and she made me spice water it was the first time I'd heard of that and she'd cry on my shoulder sometimes and then we'd regroup and take a deep deep breath and I get them gloves on because that place was not the the nicest and my team (laughs) and we helped we literally where a lot of people will do great service and hire people and recommend we literally did it ourselves me my driver you got into the trenches yeah a couple team members and we rolled up our sleeves and and I did it personally because I could tell that it was such a delicate situation that even with the best movers or people that are, have uh, any type of degree of emotional intelligence, it just really required a personal touch. And it meant the world to her um, for me to go through and, you know, do you need this? What does this mean to you? And, you know, the whole thing. And, and it, was, it was a real experience. And so I think, you know, for any real estate broker out there, um, that really wants to level up, you know, really consider uh, making it an experience for your clients. What is going to make them delighted? Not, you know, your competency is baseline. You knowing price per square foot, baseline. You knowing, you know, the amenities in the building and all of that, baseline. 
The things right. that you bring are the extra, you know, that personal touch, you know, the thoughtfulness, the, the things that, quote, unquote, aren't required, the, you know, the above and beyond. So, yeah, I think that that's something that really resonated with them. We, to this day, we stay in touch. You know, they write me. I write them emails. We call occasionally. Um, it was a really touching moment. So, yeah, I think that's what it would be is the art is, is basically being able to transcend the transaction. Fabulous. That's why they also call you the Rolls Royce of real estate brokers, I gather. You give okay. them a smooth ride. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a smooth, wealthy ride. Okay. Smooth, that's so let's, right. let's move on. Let's talk about you being a certified negotiation expert. And then this is a two-part question. What a fancy How, title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get me one of those titles. Don't you worry about that. Mm-hmm. So you're a certified negotiation expert, CNE, with the trademark, you know, of R. So how has that designation shaped your business differently? That's a really good question. So um, in full transparency, that class, the cert, so the, the designation, um, there's a certain amount of hours that you have to do continuing ed, and then there are specific uh, negotiation practices, as you would imagine, that you have to take and master for the certification. And what, how it's impacted my business, I think, is on um, a couple fronts. One is it really shaped how I approached dealing with um, interactions. So meaning before I had got the certification, and I had done a, a, a lot of negotiating over the course of my life. I mean, I like to think that, you know, it's, it's been um, 30, 35 plus years, whatever, since I was a teenager, I've always been. And obviously, and all of us negotiate something all day long. But um, it, it shaped the way I approach things because at one point I remember I had a deal before I, before I went through this intense course. And um, the, the deal was I had like a cash offer. And, you know, the short story is the buyer was kind of dancing around. I was representing the seller. And at some point I kind of just thought they were full of shit. And I kind of wanted to call the bluff. And, you know, that didn't really go so well. And it really taught me a lot that one part of negotiation is appreciating where people operate from. Sometimes it's cultural. So some people, regardless of the product, the price, the presentation, any of that, before any of that, they have to start at X. That's just in their makeup. That's in their DNA. They're always going to start at this place. It doesn't mean they won't end up where you need, to, need them to end up, but they're not necessarily going to start there or even remotely close to it. And they may take an exorbitant amount of time to get to that place. And so depending on what side you represent and, you know, the needs, obviously, of said buyer or seller, you need to be able to walk those dogs and be able to manage that situation. And so then having that training, uh, and I've had – a lot of training beyond that designation and just I'm constantly studying negotiation and um, implementing it, um, I was able to completely change my mindset around how deals can be done. So I had referenced it on Eric Miles when we did that thing um, a week or so ago on his Miles uh, Beyond Ordinary um, when I referenced that deal. (laughs) Where, yeah, where I referenced that deal 
um, where we listed at three, and the seller all along wanted two nine, and the first offer was two six five zero, and it took two three weeks to get there. Now the old me wouldn't have had the tools in my box to be able to get it there. And meanwhile, we only had right. that one offer. So as much as the seller was trying to dead them and be like, yeah, they're full of shit, like I don't like just tell them, nah, we're good. I'm like, no, nah, hold up. <laughs> we're not good because this is the offer. All the signals are there. And that's another piece how it impacted my business is that I've been able to now recognize buyer signals. And I think that's really crucial is that um, where brokers used to be the gatekeepers of the information, that's no longer our value proposition, and it hasn't been for a number of years. Now our value proposition Correct. is us giving context to the, the data that is widely available. It's, it's synthesizing that information, and it's being able to have the emotional intelligence to recognize when the buyer is in the building. You have to be able to know clues and to recognize. And so part of negotiation isn't just, okay, start low and end up wherever if you're on the buy side or start high and they'll work you down. That's ABCs in negotiation. Um, it's really being able to recognize and identify where is someone operating from, what is their motivation, and then that influences from that standpoint how you move forward with the negotiation. Fantastic. So, you know, that brings me to my next question. Talk about framing the negotiations. So in what context? Like what's the – like, oh, when oh I you know. Okay, are, yeah, when you are dealing with – you're dealing with the buy side. Let's not talk about the seller side because the seller side, we, we, have, all, we have all the information we know. The buy side gets tricky because that's what you just talked about, identifying when the buyer is in the house. So when you have the buyer and the buyer is not peeling back all the layers for you, how do you frame the negotiations with him going forward with, his, with a deal where you know this is the property they are looking for? You know that they want this property. You just have to get them there. Right. Now, that's critical as well. Um, and I work on the buy side a ton. And so some of the things, the first thing that I do, and I think is critical for any of us brokers, is to set the table. You know, I think a proper intake is really critical. You can't try to take someone somewhere if you didn't set the table and say, here's what we're going to have for dinner. If people know exactly, look, here's the process. Here's what the market's like. Here's what we're going to run into. There's going to be this type of situation. There's going to be this type of situation. If it's a sponsor and it's a new development, they're going to want you to pay for these fees. You know, here's what the um, kind of the absorption rate has been so you can understand a little bit of supply and demand and where your leverage is. If it's a resale and it's Joe owner, uh, we can also understand what their motivation is and where they're operating from. So what's helped me get them there is right in the beginning um, – I, I like to use um, some of Ninja Selling, which is, is really valuable. Um, and I don't know if you've taken that course, but I would highly recommend for anybody. You know, I know there's a million courses out there. I don't get paid by them, but I've found that their approach to uh, kind of the same information, right, all of it's the same. I think it's just the angle. Um, it really resonates with me. And that is I'll tell buyers, look, let's not get fixated on a place. Let's use a rolling three. 
Um, let's understand that what's yours can't be taken from you as long as you are proactive and you go for it. Uh, let's come up with um, a word right now, and this is in the initial interview, that if I hear that word, if I see that facial gesture, if I see whatever, then that lets me know that I'm given permission to pivot from, hey, I'm just here to advise, you know, I guide, you decide, to, oh, we're going to war, and Aaron, I want this. What do I need to do? So I put them in a mindset from the gate of you're in control of the show, but I'm going to give you the tools so that when we get to a place and we walk in that house, and I see that face, or you're like, money, if that's our code word, right. then I'm right. already establishing rapport with the agent. I'm already getting intel. I'm paying attention to the sign-in sheet, which, you know, obviously a lot of it's digital now, but I'll take the temperature. I'll, I'll pop in. I have team members pop in open houses. You know, we'll really get a sense of what's going on. We obviously know if the product is really unique because, you know, the space that you and I move in, in the luxury space, um, a lot of these things, whether it's single-family homes or at the higher end, five, ten million, whatever it is, there's not a ton of things. You know, people are willing to pay for it if it's right, and so they just need to to tell me um, when they're ready, and I basically give them permission in the very beginning to do so. I think that's how you frame it. If you don't set the table in the beginning, it's very difficult when you know it's the property. Now it's like going back to what I said before. You, don't, you can't want it more for them than they want it. So now you're screwed because you're like, shit, this is the house. So I tell them up front, we, it may be the first house you see, and I'm not expecting you to pull the trigger because you're going to want context. But I'm telling you from house one to house 10, 30, whatever number we see, you know, it's going to be that house, and you, and you either you got to be okay with losing it. And to go to move forward with framing the offer itself, you know, really all the price is just a guideline. There technically is no absolute when it comes to price. All it is is on the seller side, they want to start the conversation somewhere. As a buyer, they want to start the conversation somewhere. And our job in, in honoring our fiduciary duty is to try to get them to a meeting of the minds, you know, without any remorse or seller remorse. So, you know, in doing that, um, you know, that that's our, our major thing. So it's like, I tell them up front, you know, if you would feel bad about losing this for $1,000, if you found out that we went to highest and best and you could have paid four or five, but you offer four or three, or you could have offered 820, but you offered 790, and you get pissed at that 20 grand amortized over 20 years because you know this is the forever house or apartment, then that's what's going to guide you. You know, I don't want you to overpay. But what I don't want you to do is feel like that's what that traded for. I would have paid that. So that's your exactly. number. So that's, exactly. that's how I kind of deal with that. Unbelievable. Yeah, I, I get that because I, I had to talk a couple uh, buyers and sellers off the ledge a few times and say, especially buyers, listen, you're going to lose this house for a few grand and we don't see all these other houses and this is the one you want. I don't think we're going right. to do that. And, right. and that, it takes setting up the table for them. And then, you know, they get into a whole ego thing. Of, I'm not going to pay that because they just want this. Yeah, of course they want that. So you have to come to a meeting of mind. You have to come somewhere close to it or, or you know, over it, especially if somebody else wants it. 
because you're going to be sick if you lose that home. And, right, and, and that's, it, that's it, the it, other piece that I'll setting the table. Too, is that I tell them, you know, look, will you be more upset at paying this money over what you ideally would like to pay, or will you be more upset at not getting the house? And whichever one you can go to sleep at night with, then that's really your, your driving force. So my thing is I don't make the decision. I don't care. I operate. I could have lint in my pocket. I don't care if you buy right. this or not. You right. need to I set, know I set it up. This, this is your place, right? I put you in position because we used to, again, like I said, be gatekeepers of information. So it used to be where we found the place. And I swim in the off-market a lot and private exclusives. So there is a lot of times that I am finding the property, but that's not really my value proposition. My value proposition as a certified negotiation expert is securing the property and giving you the right strategy for this particular property and this time All right. and moment. That's what okay. you're paying me for, you know, indirectly through the sellers. You know, so it's like that's kind of where you operate. And when you do that, then you can have full confidence that you're not pushing your buyer, you're not pushing the seller to take a lower offer because it goes conversely the same way. Sellers get cocky. There's been a correction. They're still stuck on a year and a half ago. Well, this apartment sold for X two floors down or whatever. Mine should be this. Technically, it should, but guess what? The market is fluid. It's not static. So what exactly. was yesterday is no longer and now it's today. So do you want to take this number or do you want to wait a couple more days and either A, it goes back up to where you thought or it goes even lower? You've got to be comfortable with either outcome. So then that takes us out of kind of the decision-making and more in the guiding, you know, but at least you can know which way to go uh, depending on, you know, how you set it up from the gate. And I hope the agents that are listening to this particular podcast understand what it means to be a negotiator and to negotiate properly for people. Finding the house, putting the offer in, that's a piece of cake understanding where each party is coming from and bringing them together to a meeting of the minds and getting that number, that's the real deal. Yeah. Being and a to, negotiator, to framing on, the negotiations. Right. And to, to go to speak on one thing that somebody that, because this popped in my head, to address, if you're representing the buyer and you're that low ball offer coming in, but you know your buyer really wants it, but they just cannot wrap their head around coming where you really know they need to come for the seller's agent to take you serious. Right. Being forthright and being able to say, listen, here my buyer is completely qualified. Here's all their information. You know, we do a great job of making sure we tell a story about our buyer. Um, you know, it, that's less prevalent in new development, you know, because it's just more of a transaction. But in resales, when you're dealing with actual people that own their home potentially for 5, 10, 20 years, it means something to them a lot of times of who they're selling to. Um, exactly. Outside of financials, you know, we do a little bio. But let's say the number is just grossly low, and you know it. You're going in and you're like, shit, like, why won't they just come correct? Like, they are really wild right exactly. now. Exactly. It's okay. And you got to go and what, talk to the other agent. <laughs> Right. I think that's where, one, really making sure that you carry yourself in the right way will make sure that you have a reputation that will be regarded so that you can have the conversation. But let's say you're brand new or on the new side and you True. haven't really established a sterling reputation yet, the way you frame that offer will speak volumes to that agent. It lets them know that you know. So what I mean by that is, you know, your your buyer wants to come in 150, 200,000 under ask or 250, or, and let's just say really 
the right number would be within 50 grand, let's say. It doesn't mean you make the offer, but you let the seller's agent know, listen, my buyer's sincere. They just, they, they want to start the conversation here. I'm confident that we can make up a lot of ground. Please let your seller know not to be insulted. It's not meant to be insulting. This is just where they'd like to start. I want you to have full confidence in me and my team that we can, you know, execute once we get to a meeting of the mind. If you can, please do your best to get me a counter. I know under most circumstances the first answer could be get to a place, but trust me when I tell you if you can, I don't care how nominal the counter is. If you can get me a counter, then I think we can have a dialogue. And so right. many times I've been able to really – that gulf that's been between a buyer and seller evaporates just from the transparency because you're not playing your buyer. You're not disrespecting them. They're only going to go. No, no. You're just trying to get a game going. You're just trying to get a conversation. If you can't get a conversation, there's no negotiation to be had. So that's critical. And that's so important because a lot of agents, they'll submit an offer. And even, you know, I talk to young agents. Did you call the agent? Did you have a conversation with the agent? Pick up the phone and have a conversation with them. Because if That's you don't right. have a conversation and you just submit an offer, it's dead in the water before it even gets there. That's right. You know, because I remember being, yeah, being a young agent myself. I remember, you know, submitting an offer and not even getting an answer, not even a response. And then I, then I picked up the phone and talked to the agent. And she said to me, Jane, why didn't you pick up the phone prior to this? And that was a lesson taught right there, just like that. Right. Because right. we're all human. We have to have a conversation so we can move forward. And if the other agent on the other side never thought about having that conversation, now she's engaged or he's engaged with you and understand. I just had a deal that could have blew up a few times. But because this agent and I worked together, we had no problem. That's we great. have no problem at all because her, her, her buyer didn't even want her in the equation. So she <laughs> and I had to have that conversation. That's always true. And we got it through. Isn't that crazy? We got that deal through. We got it over the net, though. That's nice. Because I said, you know what? We have to work together as well as working with our buyer and seller. That's right. That's right. And it was a substantial deal. Trust me. I did not want to lose. And I'm not <laughs> in the business of losing. That's right. So this brings me to my next question. You talked about your team, you know, a lot in that last um, conversation we just had. What made you want to start a team? And I love the name, Carte Blanche. What made you, how did you come up with that name? Uh, you kind of talked about it a little bit. You, stopped, you know, you stepped on it a little bit, talking about, you know, the experience. Um, yeah. But what made you want to start a team? Because it sounds like you were doing well on your own, and I know recently with the way things have turned in the, our industry, it's all about a team. We still have, you know, single agents out there killing it, and some of them want to remain single. I don't know how they can do this on their own, but I guess it's the way you think, you know, because sometimes you have to learn it all yourself, and it's, it's easier for you just to do it yourself. So what made you right. want to start a team? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I definitely was doing really well on my own and on a great trajectory. After I left that small shop, I spent four years at Anchor. Um, I went to Corcoran, and um, I'd become a VP there, and I just 
I realized that I needed leverage. I mean, I recognized that back at Anchor, um, and I just failed, you know, to hire the right person, and so I got a little frustrated, you know, as far as they always say the first person that you add is operations because the thinking is you want to maximize yourself, and if you are doing tasks that someone at $20 an hour could do, then that's really what you are. You could call yourself a CEO, a founder, any fancy name, but the, the reality is, you're an assistant. Um, and so I was looking for leverage initially, but I was frustrated because I just um, I couldn't find the right fit. And then fast forward, when Compass came calling in 2015, um, I can't believe it's already been five years there. Um, you know, right. I, I started at Corcoran uh, Carte Blanche, and my thinking was every team that I looked at was named after the principal, and for good for good measure, they're the they're the star of the show. It's their team, you know. It's their business, and so that's natural, you know. Uh, the such and such, whatever team, you know. And for me, I was like, how am I going to attract? So I guess it goes back to this. There's the, there's a couple models. There's the what sometimes referred to, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but it's uh, it's like the hero and the minions or kind of the senior and the juniors, let's call it, right. you know, where you have a star agent, they're pulling in all the business, and then they kind of want to just work on what they want to work on, and then all the extra stuff that they don't really want to let go, they pass off, and they'll have junior agents. And those junior agents kind of learn, scrap, figure it out, come up on their own, then they peel off, and they start their own thing, and it's just kind of a cycle. I was like, I really would love to work with more experienced agents, but not so experienced that I can't add value to them but not so junior that I got to babysit them. So I figured, you know what, I'd rather start a collective. And then that's kind of where carte blanche was born because I didn't want it to be under my name because I was like, one, it's going to be really hard to attract, I think, anyone with any measure of ego, and I mean this in a positive way, or competitiveness or someone who's ambitious to want to necessarily be under me only for a certain amount of time before they peel off. Um, if I create something that they feel like they can be a part of and that I basically could exit out of, it could still keep going because it's not built solely on me, you know. So right. I'm the foundation of it, but clearly others will be able to demonstrate their skills that they're actually better than me at certain things. And so um, it took a degree of humility, vulnerability, a lot of trial and error, um, a lot of failing on my part, uh, even as a leader, because I didn't, I didn't process some of it that was required as management, and I don't call myself a good manager. I'm a great motivator, a great, you know, someone that will inspire you and on a very big picture level give you all the things needed. But when it comes to, okay, here's the checklist of the six things we need to do or the 12 things or whatever, that's not my jam. And so being able to surround myself with more functional thinkers um, really elevated my game. And it elevated the experience for the client, I recognized as well. Because when you work by yourself, you principally are going to attract, you know, people like you. And so they're cool. Absolutely. So you're, you're perfect to them. But if you get any of these other type of clients that may not be spot on for you, but you can add value to, and they're great people and they need help too, it can, that's when you can get in these little relationships that feel that, where there's some friction there. And if you have a team with different personalities, 
you know, although the culture is really critical that the culture and value system are the same. So they have to be a culture fit. You have to establish that for your team, and then you have to establish um, that and not be afraid to have people on the team that are actually smarter, faster, brighter, because if they feel that they bring value, there's no need to leave because they have ownership and there's something. So for me, with carte blanche, it's now evolved to the point where there's six of us, including me. We have an operations manager and five agents, five other agents, and we're a family. And they are absolutely smarter than me in certain things. They are faster. Um, I'm smarter than them in certain things and faster. And so we really are complementary. And um, to, to answer the question, to wrap it all together, having a team really gives you leverage. And it allows you to leverage time. It allows you to leverage resources um, and energy. So, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of where that, that's landed now. Yeah, it's it's so important, I mean, to have people around you that are smarter than you and that can bring things to the table so you guys could move, you know, closer to your goals. And it, it is something to be said about having a team with your name on it because I've ran into that several times and, you know, I never wanted to call it the Jane Bond team and I thought Bond was so general, but it was still me. And I was, you right. know, some people would say to me, you're bigger than life, Jane. And I'm like, well, it's still us. So you have to regroup and think differently when you're bringing people onto your team that, you know, want to be with you. Because that ego, trust me, yours, theirs, and anybody else's does get in the way. I mean, I've had people peel off of me saying, you know, your name is on everything, whereas though I brought them on and gave them million-dollar listings to put under their name even though it was my listing, to let them run with it. But they still didn't even know how to run with that and appreciate that. So, you know, it's, it's, a, right. it's not easy to create or manage a team, like you said. I mean, I've managed several things in my life, but it was just mine, you know, my life, my, my energy, me doing what I needed to do. And managing people is one of the hardest things, I think, to do. Yeah. And no, it's definitely having, challenging. Yeah, having a cheering squad, whether it's behind you or with you, it takes a lot of people to make one person successful. And then yeah. you have to do it all over again. So I That's take right. my hat off to you, you know, creating carte blanche, and that was a smart way of looking at it. And it had to be, you know, a mature way of looking at it because, there, like you said, there's a lot of egos in this business. And especially if you're pulling in the weight, you know, you're bringing in anywhere $100 million a year, $50 million a year, you know, and, and more so. Yeah. So let me ask sure. you this. Oh, absolutely. So when you are um, looking to add value to your team as in another member, what do you look for exactly? So if someone were to want to join Car Blanche, you're saying, or if we're looking yes. to expand? Well, your team um, to expand, or if someone wanted to join, because I know you're a part of the sports and entertainment division. So there's a specialty in that in that within within itself with your team, right? For sure. Um, yeah, I think that the first thing that I look for is are they happy? I can't work around sourpusses. I need people that have <laughs> a great spirit and are just you don't have to be bouncing off the walls and super electric, colorful, you know, but 
overall your disposition is positive. You're 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 happy. You're you're in a good space. Um, I look for people with a high ceiling. Um, someone that I feel like, you know, comes in with a book of business doesn't have to be the largest book, but I've taken someone from scratch with no business, and that shit almost broke me. So I'm not interested no, in someone with no business. Um, um, I definitely, because I think there's something to be said for you have to get yourself to a certain place to demonstrate that you have the capacity, the wherewithal, and the, the chutzpah, you know, to get business, that, that you can earn right. trust, you know, that people actually rock with you. And so I look for a high ceiling because if you come in with some business, I want to be able to multiply that. I'm a great multiplier. You know, I'm, I'm great at producing producers. So if you produce even if it's at a small level, but you're a producer and you have great work ethic and you're a hustler, then I can multiply that. Um, so a high ceiling is important because I don't want people that are kind of like, okay, this is, what I, this is what I've done, this is what I can do, then I'm not interested. But if I see that I can multiply you out, then that's a good thing. Um, humility is really important to me. Um, you have to be humble. You cannot be a part of our squad and think that you're the end-all, be-all. Do I want you to be confident in your abilities? Absolutely. Do I want you to feel that you're the best thing smoking? Absolutely. And I want you to feel that you can be a great team player and be supportive. And you mentioned that cheering squad. There are times where we, know we all play a support role. There may be times where um, it's not traditional that a team leader will go anchor a photo shoot. Do I do that every day? Absolutely not. But if it's called for, or an inspection, or anything that quote-unquote may seem like, you'll lever, you know, delegate that, as I said before, that does get delegated, and others do, or what have you, because everyone on my team is basically um, a principal, a partner in their own right, uh, but there are times that, you know, we all will play a support role to each other, and we're, we're cool about it, so I think humility um, is really, really important as well, and I think just awesome. ultimately, you know, you, you got to be you got to be a go-getter. You know, you can't be someone waiting on leads. You know, if you are out getting it and you're like, yo, I just need direction, and then I give you that direction and then you run with it, that is super inspiring. That's going to always inspire someone to take their time. So if you think about it, you're not just – if you're working with somebody like me, you're not getting 12 years of real estate. You're getting 12 years of real estate, 15 years of music industry, some military experience, some college, some street life some everything in between. Like you're getting years and years and years of modeling and examples of failure and success and all that. That shit is valuable. You can't even pay me for that. I don't care how exactly. much money you bring in. You cannot pay for that. So that's right. The only and that's way why you, you want to be here. That's right. The only way you can pay is through dedication and commitment and consistent effort and not being pulled. You know, you need to push. You know, people that you got to pull along, I'm cool on. But if it's like, damn, you anticipate, you take initiative, I'd rather, you know, I'm really big on ask for permission, I mean, ask for forgiveness, not permission. You know, like, oops, mm -hmm. my bad. I didn't know that I shouldn't have organized all those names and come up with a list to try to target for a mailer. Oops, my bad. I didn't think that it was bad to send videos to all the clients just checking in on them. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I want people to like, what, are you crazy? That's dope. Like, right. Initiate. Initiative. And that's the yeah, key initiate. word. Initiate. Be proactive. Initiate you know? shit. Get it going. Right. Because if, right. you, if you're a starter, 
trust me, I can help you finish it. Absolutely. That's why I'm All here. day. I'm trying a to get starter. started. It's hard. It. Yes. That's right. Because we, we don't know if you're built for this. That's the thing what people don't realize where you and I are, are gatekeepers at this point right. in life, outside of real estate, right? I have my community, What Up Family. I've got, you know, tech companies that I'm an angel investor for. There's all kind of things. At the end of the day, it's one button. Between me and my wife, we can touch anyone in the world, literally. That does not come without, you know, you being able to say, like, look, like, if that's the case, if it's one degree, you know, you've you got to be able to um, come to the table, you know, with something. Hey. We need to know that you're, you're built for this life because it's almost like hey. a Sherpa when you're, like, someone's taking you up the mountain. They can't, they can't come all the way down from the top of the mountain all the way down to the bottom and get there. We need to know, can you even make it up the mountain? So you're going to have to get to this place, and then someone will meet you there and then help you get to the next level. And if you were built and exactly. you were able to withstand the weather and the elements and all that shit and the, and the gear and all that, and you were scrappy and resourceful, all right, great. Now you made it to the next level. All right, now I can grab you, and I can take you from 80 to 100, 75 to 100. I can't take you from 50 to 100. Like, that's just not exactly. where I'm at. And, and you and know what? That's what it's that. all about. And that's what it's all about, passing that baton. And I tell people all the time, you know, uh, even when I went and spoke um, at the Agents of Color up in New York, when I sat there and I spoke to those agents, they resonated with me because I said to them, these are the words, I said, we are here to pass the baton because we have the experience. You know, we don't want to forget why we're here and talk about just us. We want to talk about you. We want to know where you want to go because we're already here. That's right. That's why we're sitting up here. That's right. So what are you going to do? And that is the key. What are you going to do? What are you going to start starting? And where are you going to start? Because if you want to come with me, you better have something in your mind about this. That's right. Because those are keys, you know. We can give you the keys, but you have to be able to turn it. That's right. That's right. So, Aaron, what's, what's next for you? What, what's next on the horizon for you as an astute businessman and realtor? Next on the horizon is um, inspiring everyone around the world. My, my goal is to help uh, as many people as I can and um, – I spoke on it before, my What Up family community. You know, I'm big on motivation and inspiration. I feel like self-love, we talked about it before, the first sale you make is see yourself. And so what's on the horizon for me is to continue building out carte blanche. Um, At some point, being able to leave that to the team um, and continue to kind of maybe pivot to more of a chairman role or something where I'm able to obviously still be involved but less in actual brokerage and just guiding them and helping them grow the business and evolve it, um, going nationwide in select cities. Um, And then with What Up Family, it's just this amazing community um, that I've had over the last, I guess, four years now on Instagram where I'm just building that out, you know, in probably a life coaching business to really get – you know, um, practical, uh, I never want to say advice because I'm not a person, I'm, it's not my place to give advice, but what I'd like to do is share experiences and stories um, and to help people get to where they are. So I really want to help people get to the right place. If it's a physical space or if it's an emotional state, 
Um, you know, I want people to know that, wow, he's, he's a safe place that I can call. You know, I had a, a brother hit me up on IG last week, and he had been trying to get up with me. I don't know him from Adam, but he stumbled upon me through my wife's page, and he kind of started following. He's like, yo, you're a family man like me, and, you know, it just seems like we click. I'd love to build with you, and, you know, I'm starting to manage artists and this and that. I'm like, cool. And, you know, we had ended up getting on a call, and it's like 30, 40 minutes, and he was just so appreciative. And then I just started sending him some, some uh, emails and different things uh, for him to check out. And it was just so easy for me because I've done this. And I thought about, like, wow, it is so powerful to be able to, with the push of a button, with one phone call, I can connect live and change people's lives, right. literally. Like I can literally put someone on the phone with someone or whatever. And so if I can put a battery in someone's back. So for my, my, my real purpose, I think, in life is being able to help people wake up their dreams. There's a lot of people working nine to five that are afraid to make that jump and become an entrepreneur. I want to help them. There are a lot of people that have already made the leap, but they've hit a wall um, and they feel like, you know, they don't have the resources or the money or the connections to go any further, and I want to help them to let them know that, you know, all they need is a recharge, and so I'm there to do that. So I think the, the next play for me is just to continue to build that out and that become the forefront, and it's just really about um, helping as many people as I can get to where they want to go and where they deserve to be. That's a beautiful thing. I love that. And you and I are on the same playing field when it comes to that because, you know, that's, that's what it's all about, helping, helping thy neighbor, help them move to the next level, whatever you can do because, you know, when you come from a place of servitude, everything is granted to you, everything. It's like that's God right. opens up his arms and go, listen, if you're going to be my servant and you're going to help these people, then I'm going to grant you everything you need to do this. And this That's is what right. I'm talking about, people. This is what we call from execution to excellence. You know, Aaron, I need to ask you one other question, and this, this will be my last question, and it just brought me to that. I'm telling you, I almost brought tears to my eyes talking about that. Um, if there was one question you would have people ask themselves on a daily basis trying to break through to success, what would that be? One question. On a daily a basis. On a daily basis. I mean, I think it all comes down to your why, you know? I mean, people focus on how, they focus on when, they focus on what, but not a lot of people focus on why. You know, every day you need to know your why. You need to know why am I doing this? You know, why is this important to me? You know, why am I applying this effort or why am I not applying this effort? So I would say that question, that daily question, that, that reminder needs to be, you know, what is my why? And once you have that and you know that's, that's going to be a driving force because, Jane, you know this, motivation will only get you so far. There are days that you're just not going to feel motivated. You're just not going to be inspired to do shit. You're just going to be like, you know what, I just want to crawl up in a ball and fucking, like, hide and I don't care right. if anybody checks right. me right now. And like, I've done I'm that. so good right now. So right. that's why the why is critical because if you know your why, it doesn't mean you're not going to feel those feelings, but you'll be able to push through those feelings. That is what 
is that kind of, uh, all right, let me stop bullshitting. I got this because right. I know why I've got to go to the gym. I know why I got to eat clean. I know why I got to get my six, seven, eight hours of sleep. You know what I mean? Like, I know why. You know, that, that's your purpose. So that would be the that question so that I would leave with everyone. powerful. You know, and I speak about that in my book, why I was able and how, which is a big thing too, I was able yeah. to get to where I am. My why took over everything I had inside of my being, and I did it. And that why is not cliche. A lot of people think, oh, here we go again with why. What's your why? Well, that why will take you wherever you need to get to, to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, okay, I like where I am. I like who I am. Because that why is so so important. Yeah, it's the foundation of all. Jane, this has been dope. I really really appreciate this conversation. Oh, me too, Aaron. I mean, I couldn't wait. I was like, okay, I know he's going through whatever he has to deal with, family, family, family. I said, but I'm going to get him on this line. I need to hear what he has to say. And you have put some real, you have dropped some real gems here today, I'm telling you. I mean, you have been so awesome. It, It was more than I expected. And um, I'm so glad you, were, you took the time. You know, I knew we, we were going to get here. And um, you just opened up and you have just, you know, let it all go. And, and I hope the people that listen to this podcast, this particular one with Aaron, I call him Seawood. That's my boy. That's right. <laughs> What's up, Seawood? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my, I love that name. So, you know, I, I'm just so pleased that you were able to make this happen. And um, this was awesome. This was badass, I have to say. That's why I Absolutely. call you the negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Well, yeah. You know I love you, sis. So, you know, Absolutely, to everyone listening bro. out there, you know, you you can do it, you know. You just got to gotta focus and, and drill in, you know. So that's what's up. Well, Aaron, please tell everybody how they can find you, what platforms, what social media platforms you are on because I want them to be able to look you up and, 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 you know, if they need to reach out to you, that's up to you to reach back. But please let, oh, absolutely. Please let know where you are. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not talk. Like, I definitely, anyone, I feel free to, to reach out. I mean, you can call me, 917-705-2929. I mean, it doesn't get more real than that. That's my, my direct line. Um, you can reach me on Instagram, you know, at Aaron Seawood. Um, and you can shoot me an email, Aaron at teamcartblanche.com. So either way, you know, I'm available. So there's no excuse. And uh, conversations, I'm happy to have them, and, and we can figure out if there's something beyond that that we need to collaborate. I'm down for it. But I appreciate this, Jane, and, uh, and I appreciate everyone listening as well because you took your time to, uh, to listen to us, have a conversation. I hope you guys got some good takeaways. All right. So you guys have heard from my boy Seawood. You know where to find him. And I can't wait to hear the feedback from this podcast. Aaron, I love you. Thank you so much. And I hope I you love have you a too. great day. Absolutely, you baby. Too. And, and right. please, please be safe up in New York City. I will. Stay and your put. family. All right. All right. Love stay you. put. Stay Stop safe. Home. Stay social distancing. Love you, too. Absolutely. All right. All right. Bye-bye, Bye. Aaron. 
I hope you guys caught all those gems from my brother, Mr. Seawood. Aaron Seawood, wow, what an interview. He dropped plenty of gems for you. He's making me want to go back and get my designation as a certified negotiator. He talked about showing up. He talked about framing the negotiations. He's talked about knowing when the buyer is in the house. Guys, this was one to listen to. Catch it. Please do not forget to subscribe and write us a review. You can find Aaron Seawood at Aaron Seawood on Instagram. Please, we love to hear from you. We love when you write your reviews. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. From execution to excellence. My name is Jane Bond.